Morning, Four Oaks. So glad you guys are here. Pastor Paul, if we don't know each other, um, hope you're having a great summer. Um, Students, hate to break it to you, but your summer is quickly evaporating, right? Um, Your parents are rejoicing, so soak it in while you have the chance here at Four Oaks. We're soaking up God's Word in Galatians chapter 5. See what I did there? The fruit of the Spirit. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Now, there's a couple of things, a couple of kind of catchphrases that we've been using right alongside this series and the fruit of the Spirit to help us understand what the fruit of the Spirit are about, how are we to approach them, and then, and then what they're not about, how we're not to approach them. And this, the, first, the first kind of slogan we've been talking about is this idea that the fruit of the Spirit are less aspirational and they're more geographical. And here's what we mean by that. The fruit of the Spirit are not just something, this set of moral uh, platitudes that we sort of grit our teeth, um, dig in, pull up our spiritual suspenders and say, this time, Pastor Paul, it's going to be different. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to really give it the old one-two. They're less aspirational, although we should pray for them and aspire for them, but they're more geographical, meaning there's something that God produces in our hearts through his spirit as we get close to him, as we begin to nurture a personal relationship with the God who lives within us by his Holy Spirit, as we cultivate that relationship through prayer and the word and being around other Christians. And so in that way, think about the fruit of the Spirit not as the primary goal, but as the byproduct of the primary goal. You see, we don't pursue these fruits for their own sake. Guys, you realize it's possible to go to work on the fruit of the Spirit here in such a way that you completely miss Jesus. You, you, you completely miss your need for grace and the fact that this isn't us. These, these things don't typify us. They're only things that God works in us by his grace as a byproduct of us having a personal relationship to him. C.S. Lewis kind of says it this way. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. See, the same thing with the fruit of the Spirit. If you make it all about the fruit of the Spirit, you're not going to get the fruit or Jesus. But when you make it about Jesus and about nurturing that personal relationship with him, you get Jesus and the fruit. And so we've been walking through these spiritual attributes, these fruits, one at a time. And today we are up to goodness. And so if you have your Bibles and you can, willing, able, you can stand, I invite you to do so as we read from Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to read the whole section here to sort of give us the, the flow of things. Galatians 5 verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray. Father, we freely confess as we come to Galatians 5, we look at this and say, uh, that's not us. Lord, we're, we're not intuitively patient and kind and faithful and joyful. Lord, as your people, we so oftentimes become dissatisfied with you and we look to other things to, to fill our hearts. But Lord, we pray that you, your spirit would have its, his way with us today. That as we come face to face with who you are as revealed in your word, Lord, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So, Father, um, we commit our time to you. Open your word to our hearts, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Jesus had something pretty profound and maybe a little discouraging, we first look at it about this idea of goodness. And listen to what he says to Matthew in Matthew 19, verse 16. He says, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So that's quite a gauntlet Jesus has thrown down there. Only God is good. He is good. Now, if that's true, then why would Paul tell us that part of the work of God's spirit in our life will be that he produces goodness in us? How do we become good? What does goodness look like in your life and in my life? Now, many of you have read um, this great leadership book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. You might have read it in your workplace or part of a staff team. And Jim Collins, it's an excellent book. He makes a super compelling case that, um, that in many ways, if you want to be a great leader, if you want to be a great organization, if you want to have a great team, the biggest enemy of being great is what? It's being good, Right? You see, goodness is the enemy of great, he says. There's a lot of good companies, a lot of good leaders, but few that are truly great. And see, it's, and the reason he says is that it's a lot harder, right, to be great than good. Good becomes the enemy of great because we become content and we settle and we stop striving and pushing forward. Now, when it comes to spiritual realities, Four Oaks, just forget everything I just said. Okay, Just forget everything. Because what he says is totally true for organizations and businesses. But it's the exact opposite in the economy of God. You see, it's not that good is the enemy of great for you spiritually. It's that great is the enemy of of good. And you may say, Pastor Paul, why is that? Well, that's why we're here. That's what I'm going to make you say to the end of the sermon, right? So, so two points this morning as we unpack goodness. Okay, number one, we're going to talk about goodness ascribed, and then number two, goodness applied. Now, those are our two points. So let's dive in to goodness ascribed. 
Now, if you throw a dart at the Bible, that's metaphorical, don't try this at home, right, out there, you will hit a verse about the goodness of God. We sang about the goodness of God um, in several of our songs this morning. Here's just a sampling, just a sampling. Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 31, oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. Psalm 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, there are also an equal number of passages in the Bible that not only speak about God's goodness, but also speak of his greatness. And again, we sang some of those songs this morning as well. Deuteronomy 5. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. Psalm 47, For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Titus Titus 2.13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's the question. What is the difference between God's goodness and God's greatness? What's what's the difference? Think about it this way. God's greatness describes his majesty, his glory, his kingship, his authority, his rule, his control. The fact that he is Lord over the universe. He is Lord all of life. There is none like him. To him and him alone do we ascribe glory. He's the greatest reality that the universe can ever know. That's God's greatness. God's goodness, on the other hand, is his greatness worked out in our lives and the world. Okay, so specifically, goodness is God's commitment to doing what is best, what is right for us, And here's the kicker, even when we can't see it, even when it doesn't seem like it. Now, if you've been around a church any length of time or been to a men's or women's retreat, you've heard the little, it's almost like an evangelical cheer, right? God is good all the time, all the time God is good, right? We've heard this. And I'm not going to lead us in a cheer of that this morning. And let me just be the church curmudgeon and say, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan, okay? Not because I don't agree with it. I'm not a fan because I do agree with it. See, and when we say it like that, we make it sound kind of trite and fluffy and soft and kind of squishy and formless. We can gloss it over. Because let's think about what we are saying, church, when we say God is good and he is good all the time. Because it indeed, that is a profound, rich, deep theological truth. You see, what we are saying when God is good all the time, we say that when? When we're coming face to face with things in our life that, let's be honest, don't appear to be good. In fact, aren't good. Let's think about this for a second. Whether it's abuse or divorce or prodigals or conflict or accidents or financial ruin or debilitating illness, miscarriages, death. 
when we, when we think about all of those things and then we turn it around and say, but God, I trust that you are good. What are we saying? We are saying, I still trust you. I still believe that whatever is happening in my life is ultimately for my good, even, even if I can't see it. Even, even if that just seems such a distant, uh, abstract reality in my life. And when we talk about God's goodness in this way, let, boy, this is just all over the Bible. Let me just give you a couple of passages. And think about your own life, your own circumstances, your own context as I read these and what we mean when we say God is good. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We studied that passage, remember last year in our study on Genesis. Joseph says this when? After his brothers have thrown him into a pit. After he's been sold into slavery. After everybody in the world has turned their backs upon him. And he's languished a decade, two or more, in the prisons of Pharaoh. And he can say, not that it was good, okay, in and of itself, that I got thrown in the prison. My brothers threw me in a pit for, after, for heaven's sake. No, no, no. But you meant it for good. Can you say that? Romans eight twenty eight, super familiar if you've been around the church any length of time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. For those who were called according to his purpose. See, when we say things like God is good all the time, we better mean it, right? That's a deep truth. It's a, it's a life-changing truth. It's the, it's the theological root system that should help you kind of take anchor in your life. And let me just ask you a question before we leave this point. Where, honestly, church, are you struggling to see the goodness of God? Where is it that you, if you were just brutally honest, could say, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm not, I just, I don't know if I could say God is good when it comes to my marriage. I'm not sure I could say God is good when it comes to my kids. I'm not sure I could say God is good when it comes to my career or my disability or this illness or this conflict or this relationship. And as we're wrestling with that, let me just encourage you with something, church. That God is not obtuse. God is not distant from that struggle. God knows, if we can use that word for God, exactly what you're experiencing. Why is this? Because when we think about the most wicked, evil, despicable act in the history of the world, which was the crucifixion of his own son, the greatest injustice the world has ever perpetrated on anyone. Here was sinless man crucified on a cross, yet it was itself the very thing that accomplished the greatest good for us. This is the way Acts 2 describes this, and you kind of have to scratch your head and think about this one a while, right? And you have to hold these things in, t- in tension. Listen to what Peter says. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The most despicable acts in the history of the universe was in itself, through it, God used to display his goodness. And if it's true for God, if it's true for his son, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, it's true for you. Now, if God is the only one who is good, as Jesus tells us, if he's the only one we can properly ascribe goodness to, what does it mean, what does it look like for you and I on a horizontal level to begin to reflect and grow in the goodness of God as redeemed, sanctified human beings. And that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time on. Yes, Pastor Paul, I totally, I, 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 with my heart, even, even if I can't say it, I want to be able to say it, God is good. What does this mean for me? What does this mean in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families? This is where we're going to go, point number two, goodness applied. Now, Sandy Wilson, who is, was pastor for many years at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee, um, I, I am just completely indebted to his exposition of this text, particularly the points we're going to cover here. But listen to what Sandy says about this. Now, this is really profound. He said, if God is good, then the good person is the one who is full of God. See, and, and that might be very different than the way we start to, to, to define these things, right? Well, well, Pastor Paul, we know a person is good if he does this and he does that. And he goes here and goes there and he has these particular priorities. Cart before horse, right? Fundamentally, first and foremost, we want to say, if you want to be God's man, if you want to be God's woman, you want to be God's student, you want to be God's parent, God's husband, God's wife, whatever role God has called you to, be full of God. Now, spiritually speaking, Wilson says, okay, there are a great, there, in, in the world, there are many great people, but far fewer who are truly good. Now, what does he mean? What, does, what do we mean by this? See, think about the way we use the word great in our culture for a second, right? We might say, well, Alexander the Great conquered all the known world. He was the greatest military leader in the history of, of humanity. Or New York City is a great city, which it is. Or Carnegie or Bill Gates was a, or is a great man. See, we use that adjective great to denote what? Achievement and power and might and accomplishment, being larger than life, you know, Achievement, grandeur, largesse, accomplishing big things, mighty things, awesome things, great things. But you can do all of those things, church, and remember this. You're not necessarily good. Now, for all my uh, wizarding nerd fans out there, let me, let me use this illustration. So in the very first Harry Potter book, no, no spoilers here. I know some of you are still reading this with your kids. Okay. Um, that's a whole other issue, but, but the, the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry goes into Ollivander, right, 
to get his first wand. And we all know what, that the wand chooses the wizard, Harry. We, we, we all know this, right? And so Ollivander's just taking great delight in showing Harry these wands. And he says, now this one, though, this one, is, this is special. This wand shares a core for Voldemort's wand. And, of course, Voldemort is the, is the, is the most evil um, wizard in the history of the wizarding world. And, but Ollivander makes a profound spiritual point, right? And here, this is what he says. He says, with that wand, Harry, Voldemort did great things. Terrible things, yes, but great things. See, Jim Collins says, good is the enemy of great. The Bible says great is the enemy of good. See, in God's spiritual economy, you can be one or you can be the other, but you can't be both. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be a good person and the world might say you're great when you do this, that, and the other. I'm talking about the core of your being. I'm talking the thing that drives you, compels you, motivates you, gets you out of the door, motivates you in your relationships, in your job. You can aspire to greatness. And guess what? In this life, you might actually be great. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are good. See, even the Bible speaks about goodness and greatness in this way. Isn't it interesting every time the Bible describes someone as great, just kind of the, the ominous overtone that it has, right? We, we think about God scoffing at, in Revelation, Babylon the what? The great. We think about the riots happening in Ephesus as they are calling out the name of the God they worship, Artemis the what? The great. We think about Herod the great. See, all these things from a human perspective accomplished great things. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. But do you realize for as many people as the Bible calls great, there are actually only two, two people in the New Testament that the Bible calls good. Didn't know this until I started studying this. Only two people in, in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament that the Bible calls good. The first is Joseph of Arimathea. We're not going to talk much about him this morning, but remember, he's the man who came and asked for the body of Jesus from Pilate and then took, um, took charge of all the, the funeral arrangements and gave, put Jesus in the tomb that he owned. And I think the Bible calls him good at that point, okay, because it's acknowledging that he had nothing, nothing to gain by doing that act. He was not doing it for the fanfare, the accolades. For all he knew, this very act would get him killed if the Jewish leaders found out. But the Bible calls him good. But the second person, the second man that the Bible describes as good, we are going to look at in a little more detail. And of course, that is Barnabas. So turn to Acts 11 if you have your, if you have your Bibles. We'll have the words on the screen. We want to use the example of Barnabas and the time that we have left to flesh out why Luke calls him good. And what does this mean for us? Let me read the passage. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, came, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. There's two things I want us to note about the life of Barnabas. Number one, Barnabas was eager to celebrate God's grace in other people's lives. Barnabas was eager to celebrate God's grace in other people's lives, and so too the good person is eager to celebrate that grace. Let's, let's just kind of unpack this for a minute. And let's just think about the implications of what's happening here. We know that at the day of Pentecost, and this is probably when Barnabas was first converted. He was a Jew from Cyprus, came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, was converted through the preaching of Peter. And now he has sort of come into the orb of the apostles, right? He's, he's not an apostle, but he's clearly a very important person in the life of the church in Jerusalem. And remember what's been happening. The, 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 these early Christians primarily huddled and headquartered in Jerusalem, even though Jesus had told them, you need to go around to all the cities and nations around you and share the word of my coming, share the gospel. But they, oft, they did what we often do. They became very insular. They, they loved what they had. They, they sort of had this inward focus. And so what did God do? He brought persecution to the church. Stephen was martyred. And when Stephen was martyred, persecution broke out against the church by whose hand? By Saul's hand. And Saul, it was because of Saul's work that the church was scattered all across the region. And as they began to scatter, they began to tell the people that they came to in these cities about Jesus. It was God's plan for spreading the gospel. But here's what began to happen that was really interesting. Up to that point, the church had been primarily sharing the gospel with Jews. That sort of, there was a few exceptions, but primarily it was, it was the church was made up of, of Jewish Christians. But when they went to, to all these surrounding cities, places like Antioch, Greeks, non-Jews, Gentiles became Christians as well. And the church was growing. It was exploding. And so the apostles heard about this in Jerusalem, and they said, whoa, we want to really come alongside of them. We want to mark the church with apostolic authority. So they selected one man, and they selected Barnabas. Now, it's interesting why, I don't know, we'll have to ask him one day. Barnabas means son of encouragement. 
I find it very fascinating. They didn't send Peter up there, right? They knew that Peter would, you know, you know, get it stirred up a little bit. They sent Barnabas. And here's, here's what's fascinating, church. Barnabas goes, and the church begins to really grow. Now, put yourself in Barnabas's shoes for a second. You, you were sort of on the inner, in the inner circle of the apostles. And you were being sent out on this commission to go up to Antioch and to provide leadership for them. I mean, imagine your Barnabas. This, this is his first pastoral assignment. Barnabas is going to be the bishop of Antioch. He is going to be the lead pastor of that place. He is going to go finally, right? He's being recognized by the apostles, his contribution, right? This is the way we think. Now, it's very interesting at that point what Barnabas does and does not to do in Antioch as the church begins to grow. To use a contemporary analogy, the first thing he does is not ink his book deal, right? The first thing that Barnabas does is it doesn't travel the circuit. The first thing that Barnabas does is not go into that group at Antioch and say, this church is all about the brand, right? Brand Barnabas. No, that's not what he did, right? What did he do? He went to Tarsus and got Saul. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. One of the reasons, God used that time for Saul when he was in Tarsus, his hometown, but he had been a believer now probably for some years. He used that time to study and prepare for the ministry that God would have for him. But let's, let's be honest for a second. The church really didn't want to have much to do with Saul. I mean, he had this reputation and he's a firebrand and he says he's a Christian, but who can trust him? We don't know. So he's kind of doing his thing over in Tarsus and Barnabas says, hmm, I think Paul needs to be, I think Paul needs to be involved in what we're doing here. Now understand something. Paul was a very famous figure. Paul was a well-known personality. He was a learned scholar. He was brilliant. He had an amazing intellect. And the thing that we are learning from this about what it means to be a good person is the good person, hear this church, doesn't care about accolades. The good person doesn't care about who gets credit. The good person doesn't care who goes first. See, the good person is a kingdom-minded person. The good person is the one who is looking out for the interests of others. He's looking at this church in Antioch and saying, this is a young church. There's a lot of people kind of rough around the edges around here and Gentiles and Jews, and we're going to need some help. I know just the man for the job, Paul. And Barnabas goes and gets him. You know, Harry Truman said this once. He said, it is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. And this was Barnabas to a T. And you know why we should be particularly thankful for Barnabas being a good man? It's because this series of events launched not Barnabas into the greatest missionary journeys in the history of the church, but who? But Paul. See, it was Paul who came, and as he was given opportunity and platform and a place to use his gifts, sparked the greatest missionary movement in the history of the church. In his very first Second and third journeys, Paul planted churches like the ones in Galatia. 
in Thessalonica, like the ones in Corinth. We are here, humanly speaking, because of what Barnabas did with Saul. Now, if you notice at the end of the passage we just read, when it talks about Barnabas and Paul, it uses them in that order, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But guess what? By the time they're on their first missionary journey, note this in Acts 13, what does it say? Saul and Barnabas. Saul and Barnabas. Because it was Saul who took on this emerging leadership role. And don't you see that with a good person, the good person has an almost John the Baptist-like ministry to other people. I will become less so that he becomes more. Folks, where, where in your life do you need to, to receive this admonition that maybe the issue, this isn't going to solve all your problems, but, but maybe you need to begin with the fact that maybe some of the issues in your life and my life is that we have aspired to be great. If someone would just notice me, if someone would just promote me, if someone would just tell me I'm doing a great job, if someone would just look at me and affirm me, when in reality the good person says, not to us, O Lord, but to you be the glory. Barnabas was a good man. Second thing, Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. I want to keep coming back to this over and over and over because it is so crucial, church, that these fruits of the Spirit you cannot grow, you cannot bear apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. See, if you are, this is what it means when, we say, when Sandy Wilson says, the good man or the good woman is the one who is full of God. John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit, Jesus says. But apart from me, what? You can do nothing. The fruit of the Spirit are fundamentally a work of the Spirit. So let me just try to apply this a little bit as we wind this down. If you're here this morning, church, and you're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, you're, 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 you're hearing about goodness, and you're saying, Pastor Paul, i got to be honest, I would love for this to be true about me, but it's just not. I've been, I've been, it's been about my greatness maybe a little too much in a lot of different ways in my life. If you don't like who you are this morning, Four Oaks, the first step in becoming good is to confess that you're not. Is to confess that apart from Jesus, you have no good thing. You've got works, you've got moral righteousness, you've got moral platitudes, but you don't have the work of the Spirit. And Jesus says, if that's you this morning, ah, that's just where you want to be when you realize you aren't good. And because of that, you can turn to me. You can ask for forgiveness and cleansing. You can experience my kindness and my mercy. You see, church, it's as we get face-to-face with the goodness of God through the person of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us we are then transformed by one degree of glory to another. You, you, don't, you don't become good by doing a character study on goodness. You become good knowing I'm not good, I'm looking to Jesus who is good, and then he begins to work in me. There's so an amazing example of this over this last season of my life. I, 
one of my dearest friends, and many of you knew him, Chuck Ryer, the founding pastor at Centerpoint, um, who went to be with the Lord um, just a couple of months ago, he would tell you, and this was very public, what I'm about to say. He would tell you that for a lot of his life, he aspired to do great things for God. (laughs) Great things, of course, for God and his kingdom. But Chuck will be the first to tell you that mixed up in there was a lot of stuff about Chuck, a lot of stuff about man's kingdom. And and what made Chuck so unique is that he would actually admit this, right? (laughs) Most of us wouldn't. But the last years of his life, I saw him become content with the fact that he would just self-admittedly say, you know what, I'm not going to be great. God, that, that, that door's kind of closed. That dream is sort of over. I don't aspire to greatness any longer. And guys, in coming to that realization that it wasn't about him, it was about the kingdom, it was about legacy, it was about the gospel, guess what? Chuck became good. See, a good man, a good woman is humble, giving, quick to share the glory, quick to not just share the glory, but to pass the glory, to pass the credit. And Chuck, at the end of his life, spent it just asking God, what does it mean for me to be faithful? What does it mean for me to be a kingdom-minded man? And that's what all of us should pray this morning Lord, we want to celebrate God's grace in other people, and and we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, led in such a way that we're not here to try to make our name great. We're here to try to make your name great. See, Chuck ran his race well, and I was thrilled to be able to say at his funeral, Chuck died a broken, repentant man. But it began with being honest with himself about what his aspiration is. What about you? What do you aspire to? A lot of people aspiring to greatness. Too few aspiring to be good. Let me end with this. A good person, church, is one who recognizes that all of their efforts to be great are ultimately futile. And that person is one who runs to Christ, who comes to Christ and experiences the goodness of God as manifested in his son and says, here I am, Lord, have your way with me. Use me as you will, do with me what you can, but, but I don't want to leverage my name for fame because let's be honest, that's here so quickly like a mist and gone and no one remembers But Jesus Christ, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who is truly great. And so church, let us spend this season coming to him and asking him, Jesus, I want to be filled with goodness for your greatness. Let's pray.